0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Welcome to My Life in Books, authors talking books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England.
0: Ellen Jovan is a self-confessed grammar nerd. So passionate is she that in 2018, she decided to set up a table outside her New York apartment to answer questions about correct use of grammar and other knotty linguistic problems that passers-by might have. It proved an instant success, and soon she and her husband took the table and a selection of reference books on tour round the United States. Although the pandemic interrupted their progress, By 2020, she'd gathered enough material to write a book about people's most common grammar questions and complaints, giving examples and guidance for correct usage. So, if you find yourself wincing at a misplaced apostrophe or puzzling over when and where to use a semicolon, Rebel With A Clause is the book for you. And what's more, the information within comes straight from the horse's mouth. That's horse apostrophe s because Ellen herself narrates the audiobook.
2: In the late afternoon of September 21st, 2018, I exited my New York apartment building carrying a folding table and a big sign reading grammar table. I crossed Broadway to a little park called Verdi Square, found a spot at the northern entrance to the 72nd Street subway station, propped up my sign, and prepared to answer grammar questions from passersby. This might seem bizarre to some, but to me it felt like destiny. I've been teaching writing and grammar for decades. I love grammar. I've studied 25 languages for fun. My bookshelves are filled with grammar and usage books carefully alphabetized by language from Albanian to Zulu. I majored in German in college and earned a master's degree in comparative literature specializing in African-American and German writers. One of the greatest pleasures of my life has been participating in a world of reading and literature and beautiful, varied words. I love exploring how they are put together, not just in English, which is the focus of this book, but in all the languages I have studied. The grammar table idea originally came to me a couple of months before that inaugural fall afternoon. From the moment the whim first entered my head, I knew I had to make it happen. Waiting for the furnace days of summer to end, I took care of the practical details. I researched opaque city regulations before determining that dispensing free grammar advice qualified as free speech. I studied the folding table market and ordered my favorite and most grammar-friendly, a lightweight 48 by 20 inches, and I made a grammar table sign, adding to it what I thought were helpful, discussion-inspiring suggestions such as capitalization complaints, semicolon phobia, and comma crisis. That September day, it took me approximately 30 seconds to start getting visitors. One of the first questions involved a spousal apostrophe dispute. A woman came up to me with her husband, two kids, and a complaint. Handing me her cell phone, she told me her husband had sent her a text message with a misplaced apostrophe. The evidence was right there on the screen. Another fun afternoon for the Bensons. Benson apostrophe S. I told her she was right, no apostrophe. The husband laughed. He had no painful grammar sensitivities, and off went the apostrophe-free Bensons to enjoy their afternoon. Some people just need someone to smile at them politely while they're complaining, and then they go home happier. I like listening to people, and I'm genuinely curious about them, which is why I included a vent option right on my grammar table sign. Ellen Joven,
0: welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you so much, Red. I am delighted to be here today. Well, I'm really excited. I love talking about grammar and spelling. But what was the spur to you setting up the grammar table?
2: I was sick of being on the computer all the time because
0: the great thing about the internet
2: is that there are language nerds everywhere and you can find them as opposed to being in your own little separate nooks around the world. So I was finding global language nerds hanging out in Facebook groups talking about the languages we were studying or grammar features and I just, language is supposed to connect us as human beings and it started to feel kind of isolating. So somehow I thought, oh, it would be fun to have a grammar table and do this on the street instead of online. And so I bought a table and made a
0: sign. Well, some people might ask, you know, why is it so important to get your grammar correct so long as you're getting the message across? But clearly it is incredibly important to people. you got people coming up to you within 30 seconds. Right. I did get people within 30 seconds. People love talking about
2: little details of language. They're around us all the time every day. And even for people who claim to hate grammar, whatever that may mean to them, they still have to write emails, they still puzzle over apostrophes. So if it's approached correctly, it's also a lot of fun. It doesn't have to be such a painful thing as many people think.
0: The example we just played in the clip of the audiobook was a spousal apostrophe dispute And we can hear that you sent them away very happy. But can you give us your guide to conflict resolution as far as the apostrophe is concerned? (laughs) Let's see.
2: In general, the errant apostrophes show up when people use them to form plurals. So for plurals, you should just be adding your S and your ES normally to your nouns, whether they're a surname or a, just a regular common noun. The apostrophe becomes relevant when you're talking about what we know as possessives. And I think sometimes that term confuses people because it doesn't always feel strictly like possession, like the dog's tail. Does the dog possess the tail? Not exactly, but that's the idea of the dog, apostrophe S, tail. An area that I get a lot of complaints about is the stray apostrophe used for plural formation in odd situations, like the 1970s, for example. Normally, at least in the U.S., I'm not sure about usage elsewhere, uh, we normally write 1970s with no apostrophe before the S. But you see in historical texts that people often wrote it with the apostrophe. And that's a case where you're sort of changing the substance of the noun in the middle of it from a number to a letter. And so in things like that, like mind your P's and Q's. So normally you wouldn't just write P's, you would write P apostrophe S or you'd have something distinguishing it. So there are rare cases where you do use them for plurals and that throws people.
0: And of course, you always need to use one if you are abbreviating two words. So they are, but they're contractions, yes.
2: Thank you. Thank you for reminding me about the other class that I neglected (laughs) to mention. Yeah. So I use them in in, for possession and for contractions. Absolutely. T H E Y
0: apostrophe R E is a contraction of they are. I love contractions. I use them a lot. But it kind of gets a bit complicated and I can see why people get confused because if you're saying there, as in they're sitting by the pool, that sounds very much like there or there, as in they were sitting there or their ice creams were melting whilst they're <laughs> sitting by the pool. And, and that, I suppose, is where part of the problem comes. People get confused by the, the similar sounds.
2: That's right, and that's part of the adventure of spelling things correctly in English. Often, when I see someone write t h e r e or t h e i r for the contraction of they are it's str- it seems to me that there is a lack of awareness of the actual underlying grammar principles, mm-hmm. you know, like they apostrophe r e has a pronoun and a verb tucked in there, which is a very different function. Uh, and I think if you read a lot and have a lot of exposure to writing and books and all that great, wonderful thing that filled my childhood, that is, it's a lot easier not to mix them up. But everyone has their little weird weaknesses. I have my own things that I can never remember um, that I have to look up over and over again. And it drives me nuts, but I just soldier on through it
0: <laughs> Are you going to share with us or are they deep No, language?
2: absolutely not.
0: <laughs> and now that we've established why it is important that we are better educated in the use of grammar and language, you and your husband Brant who is a fellow grammar nerd took the table on a road trip round 47 states of the United States. I know that the pandemic Halted your progress. But why didn't you go to Connecticut? <laughs> uh,
2: because it was so close to us here in New York City that we just thought we could go anytime. We did go there. I would just like to register that before COVID hit, we did go there. And the plan was for me to set up at the train station, but it was kind of cold and I was hungry. And we got pizza. And then Maybe if we had got set up after that first set of pizza slices, we would have been out on, on the train platform on time. But then I wanted seconds because grammar, bur- doing this stuff, you know, the table transport and all that burns a lot of calories. Um, and then by the time we finished the second serving of pizza, it was too late. And so we said, okay, we'll just come back because it's down the train line. No problem. And then we were interrupted for about two years and eight months.
0: Pizza causes grammar hiatus. (laughs)
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) During your travels to the other 47 states, though, you discovered that there were certain grammatical foibles that came up again and again and again. And the one that you call a national obsession in the United States is the use of the Oxford comma For those who don't understand what an Oxford comma is, could you explain and then whether and when we should use it?
2: Sure. I know the Oxford comma under a couple of different names. I use the term Oxford comma because that's what most people know it as here, but I prefer the name serial comma, S-E-R-I-A-L. I also know it as a series comma, and that is the comma before the and in a list of Elements, for example, when I was in Connecticut, I ate pizza, comma salad, and pie. So, the comma before the and in that list—that's the one that is referred to as the Oxford comma or the serial comma. And some people put it, and some people don't. Associated Press style, which governs a lot of newspapers. Uh, doesn't put it in unless it's necessary for clarity. And um, most book publishing, though that I'm familiar with, at least, which is often governed by something called the Chicago Manual of Style. That style would have a comma before the and. That upsets people a lot. So a lot of there's this idea that you can't have a common and and abutting each other, which is incorrect. Um, the people who who want the comma in there insists that it doesn't make sense if you don't have it in there, and it binds the second to last and the last item, which is also untrue. And I find it fascinating psychologically to think about why people care about this so much. So I've had a lot of fun with it over the years, talking about it with people. The mock indignation, the maybe not-so-mock rage when people take out people's beloved serial commas it is necessary when the lists get a little bit more complicated. So even if you are a non-Oxford comma user, I would still put it in before that final and if you have a complicated list with lots of with things going on. For example, if you have an and in one of the elements, what if one of your elements is spaghetti and meatballs? Then having that extra cereal comma in there for sure it can be useful for the reader. So I ordered salad comma spaghetti and meatballs comma, and soda.
0: Now, along with the grammar table, you also constructed a sign that had, well, I suppose we could call them trigger words, like (laughs) comma crisis and semicolon phobia and the word vent. You really did want people to to let it out and and, and share their, well, I suppose, grammar insecurity with you.
2: (laughs) That's Well, the vent part, seems to invite more commentary on the reasons people are indignant (laughs) about they don't like things they encounter, they don't like what their spouse does with a particular word or their daughter-in-law. And I want to make clear, I I do want the conversation at the grammar table to be pleasant. So Mm -hmm. vent was meant sort of humorously. I didn't want people to come up and just feel it was an opportunity for them to complain about every relative they could think of uh, whose grammar they didn't like or spelling or whatever. But there's a kind of comedic excitement about getting to talk about some little detail that you struggle with or that you are battling other people about. Uh, And I wanted that to feel playful. So um, people have taken advantage of that, especially in New York, where people love to vent.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll come on to some of the venting and some of the reasons why people vent. But I was rather taken by your one-line cure for when you feel an attack of semicolon phobia coming on. Could you share that with the listeners?
2: Oh, yes. I often use a semicolon when in places where I could use a period, but I am tying the two Typically, independent clauses, what could be two separate sentences, I'm tying them together a little more. I don't want the pitch to drop at the end of the first sentence as much as with a period, and I like I want to um, create a closeness and intimacy between the two ideas. And I think often it creates a sort of dramatic tension. Uh, I have to be very careful about semicolons, though, because it is one of my vices. If I am left to my own devices, I will use too many of them. Um, And I I teach adults writing sometimes, and um, I counsel them not to use semicolons as an opportunity to build never-ending sentences, which some of them like to do.
0: It's a closer way of linking than using an and or another conjunction, but it's not so much of a break as a full stop then or a period as you call them on your side of the Atlantic.
2: <laughs> That's right. And I do also <laughs> use them in complicated lists where I would normally use a comma, but mm. there are already commas within the, the elements, So then I have to upgrade to a
0: semicolon. I like that one. Those are good. Now, another one that came out is the difference between effect and affect. And I hadn't realized quite how many people were unsure of when to use the one rather than the other.
2: Oh, I would love to travel around other English-speaking countries and learn if it's as confusing in other places. Effect change with an E is to bring about change. So some people argue, yes, but you can also affect change with an A and really... Can you? Is that really how we go around talking about change? Well, I affected the change. I don't think that's what we do.
0: So, if I use special effects to change the pitch of your voice, I could make it sound as if you had an affectation of your voice.
2: <laughs> you could. And I'm going to look forward to hearing what happens to my voice later.
0: I promise not to, so long as you promise to carry on answering my questions. Okay. But yeah, this clearly affects a lot of people.
2: It does. And the thing is, I love talking about commonly confused words because I get to draw little tables with pictures and I just really get a kick out of that. I enjoy it. Some people will still have trouble with it. It just, you end up with a block about it. And so I just recommend having a little table on your computer. Just you can tape it to the monitor or stick it on your desktop and you just look it up. Just keep looking things up that you can't remember. I have spent my entire life looking things up.
0: And actually, that's one of the things that struck me about what you were doing. Quite often, you will dispense. A table or a diagram explaining exactly what you've been talking about—a little bit like a prescription. I, I came to think of the the grammar table as kind of like the linguist's psychiatrist chair. Wow! I probably need licensing then. <laughs> well, you weren't earning any money from it, though, were
2: you? <laughs> um, well, someone did give me a dollar. Oh. And I don't normally accept anything, but she really, really wanted to give it to me and I felt I needed to accept it. So I think that did turn me professional. But it's funny you mentioned about the prescription thing because I hadn't thought this through. This is the first time you've made me aware of it. But the size of the grammar table pad I had printed not long ago is about the size of a prescription pad at the, at the doctor's office and I wonder if I did that subconsciously.
0: It sounds as if your prescription pad was dwarfed by the size of some of the reference books that you had with you. Tell me which ones were the ones that you really relied on and why you didn't just have them on an iPad or other tablet.
2: That's a great question. I like to bring physical books so people can see what I'm using. Because if I'm on my phone, they might just think, you know, I'm tweeting. Mm. I want them to know what I use, and I want them to know what kinds of things I consider authoritative, and maybe someone will want to buy one of them. I'm not on commission, but I think often people are reluctant to spend their own money on things that will actually be beneficial to them. So, Um, Brian Garner's, Garner's modern English usage, he's a legal lexicographer, but he writes this usage book that just is, it's like a playground of language. I love going through it. He has entries that are sort of alphabetized as in a dictionary. So if you're arguing with someone over a particular word, you just go to the entry. And I just like the way he explains things because he looks at actual usage in the real world and gives examples often from, there are a lot of examples from journalism, which I find Mm -hmm. useful and relevant. You never know what you can find in there. So it's very big is Mm -hmm. the point. And last night I put it in a knapsack. I was going to walk across Central Park to my talk and have it at my talk. And by the time I got partway out the building, I realized it was way too heavy and I either need to work out a lot more or I need to go electronics so I you know I'm on I'm on the fence about that kind of stuff. I think I'm <laughs> going to just work out more.
0: Indeed, and there is something very reassuring about a big book. It 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 just screams knowledge, I think. Uh, and the fact that you might have read it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I also I love having dictionaries with me because mm. Um, although I do sometimes use my phone for that now, because a lot of times the questions that I can't answer have to do with some obscure etymological issue. I'm not a lexicographer and I don't have the dictionary memorized. So the dictionaries are very important to have at the table.
0: And I know you used the Associated Press style guide, which is a a bit of a grammarian's Bible. And I think it was that volume that kind of wrong-footed both you and me as a as a reader when you went off to check whether you should use a singular verb after none or no one and it actually said that you could use either
2: i can't remember where i looked up the none thing i've looked it up in a million works now so here's the typical scenario none of my neighbors has or have arrived mm. so I believe that I was taught in my in my youth um, to use it with a singular verb, as as quite a few people were. But that's a mistaken idea about it. It can substitute for not one or not any, and not any is often more of a plural idea. So I would probably almost never say none of my neighbors has arrived for the meeting. I would say none of my neighbors have arrived. And sometimes people come by the grammar table. I've had this happen in the subway station, very upset. And that's actually where um, people often get the most miserable is when there's choice. And there often is choice. And I like to support choice because art often involves choice. We don't want to be bound by overly pedantic rules that have nothing to do with the magic fields of language that we are dancing through in our lives.
0: And you are at pains to say early on in the book, mine is not the grammar judgment table. You are all about empowering people to feel confident in expressing themselves to others.
2: Absolutely. So many people associate grammar with negative experiences. I think because I have always been thoroughly delighted about everything I've ever done with grammar throughout my childhood, I think that allows me to come at this with joy. Um, I don't feel punitive in my approach. I didn't feel my childhood had punitive grammar situations. So wherever people are with their understanding of language or their confidence, I want them to feel that there is warmth and support and that they can ask what they want and not feel judged about it.
0: Well, we're going to come on to the educative side later. And actually I think we'll also see some of the lessons that we think we have learned in the past might not always have been correct. The one that irks me is when people use fewer rather than less. Yet that was one of those examples that you gave where the boundaries are becoming more blurred and actually very few of us would say... I went to the supermarket counter that said five items or fewer, which is technically correct. Most of us just go to the counter that says five items or less. (laughs) Well, you
2: haven't hung out in my neighborhood, (laughs) (laughs) then. We have so many fewer sticklers around here. I much prefer that phrase with less. They've been used in overlapping ways for a very, very long time. I kind of feel as though the fewer um, union has gained ground in in my lifetime because I see fewer in cases where it just seems very odd to me. I normally use fewer with countable plural nouns, so I would say I have fewer apples than he does, but I now see in print. A lot more of things like this. Fewer than 2% of Americans ride bikes to work. So I don't use fewer with percentages. I use less. Less than 2% of Americans ride their bikes to work, that kind of thing. And I wouldn't say my pet pig weighs fewer than 50 pounds. That's Mm. a countable plural noun. But there are situations where the units are acting as a big blobby thing. That's my technical explanation. Um, And I use less there as do most people when they're not thinking about it and overcorrecting.
0: So I guess really good grammar requires a lot of common sense, but also a good ear. Quite often, if it sounds right, it works all right.
2: I think that is often true. The thing that throws people, depending on what you've heard growing up, you might have a different idea of what sounds right than others. i I do enjoy language variety as an example of something that people often really flip out about. When I was in the South, I heard, where's my Mm -hmm. husband at? So the at gets tucked on the end. Does that sound funny to
0: your ear? Uh, It's not something I'd say.
2: (laughs) Right. So it's not something (laughs) I'd say either. It's genuinely just not part of my dialect, but I enjoy it. I just think it sounds interesting. So maybe it sounds wrong to people who don't say it, but... We do all kinds of things that are a little bit surprising when you start to dissect the sentences. We have weird idioms. We have weird constructions that just become a part of us and aren't visible to us. What is visible to us is the differences between our dialect and other dialects that we might encounter. And then we pick on that thing and scrutinize it to excess. But we don't really think so much about the things that come out of our own mouths that we also heard growing up in our own families. So I just I don't know, where's where's my husband at? Gets a little extra uh in there. <laughs> you know, you can really tell you're looking for that husband.
0: Well, having addressed the fewer and less issue, I'm going to ask you in less than 2 minutes to explain the use of lay, lie and the direct object. <laughs>
2: That's a big order. Okay. The challenge with lie and lay, and we're talking about lie in the sense of reclining, not in the sense of telling an untruth, which is a totally regular verb. He lies. He lied. He has lied. That's that's not under consideration here. But if you're talking about reclining, you have to start, first of all, with the correct verb. So if you are going from a standing position to a lying down position, use the verb to lie if you are putting an object down on a table so there's a that's the direct object you are laying that thing down so start mm-hmm. with the verb to lay and then the forms overlap a bit so the forms of to lie as in to lie down present tense lie past tense lay and the past participle which is he has lain down So it's lie, lay, lane for one verb, and it is lay, laid, L-A-I-D. There's no L-A-Y-E-D. And then L-A-I-D again for the past participle. He has laid the book down. People get them mixed up constantly. And often I encountered people who said they had never heard of the past participle L-A-I-N. And I think they thought I was making it up.
0: Well, thank you very much. You have certainly laid down the law although whether that's L-A-W or L-O-R-E, I'm not sure. But, Ellen Jovan, after the break, we will venture further into the naughtier problems of the grammar table.
1: Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling (laughs) 844-122-1111.
0: Welcome back to My Life in Books. Today I'm exploring the complex linguistic glue that binds us all together with self-confessed grammar nerd Ellen Jovan. Ellen, we mentioned beforehand that you hand out tables and diagrams to some of the people who come to the grammar table for them to help learn some of the grammatical rules. Tables are something that a lot of people associate with their learning at school and they find really, really useful. And and it is only often through visual representations or games that we can learn rules in inverted commas. One of the things I found quite striking was how many of the visitors to the grammar table felt a, a degree of nostalgia for... Grammar baseball at school, which isn't something that I'm familiar with, but certainly might have meant that the the rather dry lessons that I had about prepositions and datives and ablatives might have stuck in my brain a little bit more effectively had it been more fun.
2: I did not personally have exposure to grammar baseball, and I suspect I wouldn't have liked it as much as just regular old grammar because the only PE, physical education class I had in school that really stressed me out was my softball class in seventh and eighth grade. So I would prefer to separate it from baseball. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) in this case, a woman I met in Nebraska in a tiny town of a, a thousand people, Um, said that she had grammar baseball. And what that involved on Friday afternoons, I think, the teacher would give the students, they would divide up into two teams and the um, the teacher would give them sentences that they had to go through and identify things like, is this a noun verb? Is it subject? Is this a prepositional phrase? Is this direct? They had to go through and identify the parts of speech and the grammatical roles of the different elements. And as they got things right, they would advance through the bases. And I guess sometimes they had kids who did a really fabulous job and would get home runs. And then everyone would go, I think she said, we would, we would go wild. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was so cute. Now, all I needed to enjoy the grammar was the grammar. I didn't hmm. do anything special that I can recall with it, no competitions or anything like that. I just loved it by itself. But I believe in pulling out the whole bag of tricks to engage students in, in all kinds of learning. It's, learning should be fun as much as it can be. Sometimes you do have to do hard work and drudgery, but why not make an adventure out of it?
0: Hmm. Yeah, and your book is very much a reflection of how personal language is to people and and a lot of people feel an affection to the way that they were taught or to the way that they remember that they were taught which might not always be the same thing or or actually they weren't particularly well taught uh, and that has made them less confident you actually debunk some myths not everything we were taught was correct you know that rule that I remember being drummed into me, uh, never ending in a preposition. Well, we've already covered it with where is my husband at, which we both agree jars. But if I was to say this was the book I was telling you about, that is a preposition. And that that is correctly placed.
2: Yes. The question is, do you want to follow the rule you remember from school? Or do you want to have friends? Because if you go around <laughs> saying to people, that is the book about which I was telling you, your friend count is going to probably go down. And that probably that rule, which I was definitely taught in school and no longer listen to unless I think it is better for the emphasis of the sentence. That's a stylistic choice, not Mm -hmm. a grammatical one, though. But that's the book I was telling you about. It's completely 100% natural. There's no way I'm ever going to write. That is the book about which I was telling you. And that's a misguided rule that people still get quite angry about sometimes. They vent about that. They use the venting Mm -hmm. option at the grammar table to vent about that. And it is hard to disabuse them of that notion, and sometimes i just don't even bother trying not everyone wants mm. to leave behind ideas from their childhood even if they've been proven linguistically unsound
0: yeah i must say there were there were times during your book and another one is is not starting a sentence with a conjunction like and or but which i know i'm guilty of doing quite a lot and and you say yes we can do that i i wonder who does want to perpetuate these myths. And I was reminded at times of Nancy Mitford's 1955 essay on you and non-you use of words, that you can perpetuate a sort of class snobbery by using the words lavatory instead of toilet uh, and and (laughs) sneer at the people who use the word toilet or lounge because they're clearly lower class... You know, those days hopefully are behind us, but maybe not for everybody.
2: I think it's really fascinating to think about how people get attached to these ideas. And it's similar how people get attached to certain misconceptions about society or politics. If there's emotion bound up in it, which there is often. So this is, you know, we're talking about childhood memories from when we were impressionable if our beloved fifth grade teacher told us something and it stuck with us you know it's pleasant for people to hang on to that it's something that mm. they've followed and they don't want to think about in a new way sometimes but i think as i get older it's very important to me to remain open to new information and new influences because if you think about it if some random person who teaches fifth grade english came up to a party you were Attending now and said to you, This is how things are, you would be skeptical of what that person said. You wouldn't just say, Oh, Mm. you are a fifth grade teacher, and therefore I'm going to believe everything you say. You would approach it with the same kind of skepticism you approach other things that people tell you at random when you have encounters throughout your adult life. There's something about the the childhood access that's why the mm. you know the cereal makers want to get to us young so that we keep buying that brand of cereal people get attached and they don't look critically at it in the same way and you also mentioned memory we just don't remember things as well as we think we do
0: i suppose part of the problem is that we are taught grammar and spelling and in spelling there's a right and wrong and we're all a bit traumatized by those spelling bees or spelling tests that we had at school where so many of us actually went out on misspelling the word misspelling. Cause it's I, loved, difficult. I
2: loved everything related to spelling in school.
0: <laughs> yeah, I bet you were really good at it. And some of us never got the perfect 10 because there's always a word that you'll get wrong. And to this day, I still have to double check certain words because we do get a bit traumatized. You know, a big red cross next to something. Nobody likes being wrong. And that feeds into our insecurity. And if you're taught in the same lesson that, you know, there are rights and wrongs for grammar, that's going to feed into your insecurity.
2: That's why I want the grammar table to be a second chance. Mm. You had trauma, come to the grammar table. I will try to untraumatize you.
0: Excellent. Well, you are certainly not judgmental, Ellen Jovan. Although I did wonder—you know—have you ever been tempted to whip a sharpie out of your bag and scribble in an apostrophe or scribble out an apostrophe?
2: (laughs) If you're asking me if I'm that surreptitious apostrophe remover who goes around at night, I am not that person. Um, I I had more instincts like that when I was younger. I just don't really feel them anymore because the signs that have a lot of apostrophe errors around New York City often might have been made by immigrants who speak four other languages mm. but don't know the apostrophe usage in English very well. You know, and you just never know how people arrive at the outcome um, they arrive at. <laughs> I just ended <laughs> in a preposition. And I, I, like, I prefer to think about it in, with curiosity rather than judgment.
0: Yeah, as you say, you never know how people have gotten there, do you? And, <laughs> and <laughs> language is evolving. Gotten, I'm familiar with from Chaucer and Shakespeare, but it passed into archaism in England around about the same time that the Pilgrim Fathers hopped on a boat and went over to what became the US. We all evolve at different speeds, don't we?
2: Yes, and I do get judgment from some English people about my gotten. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Thank you for um, saving me and my particular past participles.
0: Hey, you know, if you're on the side of Mr. Shakespeare, you can't be doing too bad. (laughs) So one of the big worries that you hear is that social media is wrecking the English language with its lack of capitalization, lack of punctuation and emoji or emojis, I don't know. Is the emoji going to kill the exclamation mark? And do we need to be worried about the kind of um, wild west of social media speak?
2: I try not to make too many specific predictions about what will happen because as a 57-year-old, I feel my ability to anticipate some of the changes is a little limited. However, I do not feel pessimistic at all about the social media influence on writing. I do feel some uh, concern about on social and political issues. But social media was a gift to me as a writer because, and I think it is to a lot of young people who are learning to write, who are open to receiving feedback from audience. What I mean by that is I did not have a chance when I was a young person to write for a ready-made diverse audience of people from anywhere in the world where I would see feedback to things I had posted and comments I could learn from, not just on the content, but maybe on the style, maybe something didn't go over well. If you listen to other people, You can make really swift improvements to your writing and to how you package information. You can see what people don't understand and what they do or what they like and they don't like. Um, So I think it's wonderful. I think in the last 10 years, it had a big effect on my writing for the better. So I am fond of thinking of it as a writing training tool. Otherwise, you would just have had your teacher. Now you can have all these other people responding to you. That's amazing.
0: Now, earlier you used a lovely phrase, language is a dance that we can all do together, and I think we can hear from your narration of the audiobook just how much you thrived off your interactions with your visitors to the grammar table. There were a pair of construction workers in Alabama who kept popping up, provided quite a lot of humour and fun but they were also very indicative that you should never judge a book by its cover. These guys had some really pertinent questions, and they might not necessarily have been the visitors who you expected would have come to your table first. What were the things that really surprised you?
2: Well, may I elaborate on those two men? Because mm. they, they surprised me in a number of ways. One, you know, they were not totally sober and um, (laughs) (laughs) they were playing hooky from work, and I was really amazed that they wanted to hang out at the grammar table at all. So at first I thought uh, there's one of them who was insisting that he loved grammar was putting me on. I, eye him, we have footage of all this because my husband filmed it. I've looked at it recently. I can see myself eyeing him skeptically when he says he loves (laughs) the English language because I was thinking he was up to something (laughs) and it (laughs) probably wasn't going to be good, but he really meant it. He was very attached to apostrophes in the right place. Commas, it commas in places that I don't even bother using them. So he was preserving English, you know, as a in his little pocket of language use. There, he was really committed to some traditional punctuation, even in texting. But he's an example of what I saw all across the United States. Just that people people think of the grammar outfit maybe as being the bow tie and the in the yeah, blazer, yeah. but it it could be the person. With uh, neon tennis shoes, holes in jeans, giant headset on, listening to music, uh, 18 years old, that kind of, just some people would come up to me who looked like they were not heading to the grammar table at all. And you just never know people of all demographics, and I had fun with all kinds of people.
0: Another one of the takeaways I, I got from this book was just how many young people. Children, teens, recent graduates came to you to discuss some pretty in-depth grammatical questions. I certainly came away thinking that the future of language is in very, very good hands
2: we're going to keep right on using it and communicating with it. Yes, there's some very pessimistic people who came by the table and said, grammar's dead, no one cares. (laughs) But right before their visit, right after, I would have visits from very enthusiastic people. I have a a special age group that seems to have a kind of magical connection sometimes to the grammar table, 10-year-olds. 10-year-olds are the magic age. And then I would get children of all ages. But some of the 10-year-olds are the absolute most fun. They ask complicated questions. And I think I think the pessimistic people among us should hang out with some of them.
0: Are you going to take the grammar table on world tour and visit Canada and maybe the UK?
2: Oh, my goodness. I am so excited to talk about this. Well, first of all, I just have to tell you, after the book was published, I did make it to the remaining three states. I went to Connecticut first, um, took care of that very remote and hard to get to state. Um, <laughs> <laughs> before
0: lunchtime, was it?
2: <laughs> and then we visited the 49th state we visited is in fact the 49th state to enter the US. That is Alaska. And then we went to Hawaii and I was in some very dramatic places there on the side of a mountain, on cliffs wind blowing. And then, um, I want to go all over. I mean, my dream would be that I could just, I would like to be on the road right now, just roaming around. I love Canada. I would love to travel all over the UK and actually just about anywhere where people would have me. I am ready. So, um, please invite me.
0: Ellen Jovan, thank you so much for sharing your insights from the grammar table. But before I let you go, I hope you will share some of the books that have inspired you as a reader through the books of your life. All right. Was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author?
2: You know, that question hurts my heart a little bit because I don't like to single out books. It's sort of like the grammar table. I don't like to single out one expert or one dialect. I like to remain open to all kinds of things. And I also didn't grow up thinking I would be a writer. So it's a tricky question, but um, I did really love certain books as a kid. Probably the one that feel, I feel the most connected to with what I'm doing now when I look back is The Phantom Tollbooth which is just a magical tale of a young boy traveling through an imaginary land. And there was math, there was language. It was just my kind. You know, the maximum nerdiness jammed into a really funny book. And I also loved the Jules Pfeiffer illustrations in that. I really connected with the drawings and I can still picture pretty much all of them now, years later.
0: And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? <laughs> also, an incredibly difficult question
2: for me. I tend not to reread books that I have read as an adult. It is extremely unusual, or adult books that I read as a child, because typically I'll just say, Well, I love that author, but surely there's another book that I haven't read yet that I would prefer to read now, because I still remember some things from that book. But there's a set of books that I read when I was a kid, and that I actually re-read some of not terribly long ago. And I think in a way, this is not completely accidental. All creatures, great and small. The James Harriet books, the stories are about quirky characters who are not always 100% pleasant by conventional standards, but he tends to bring out the emotional depth and the linguistic variety. I think I think this is partly why I liked it and why I still connect to it now. Um, it, It connects me to the whole array of humanity from wealthy to not so wealthy, from educated to not so educated, from quirky to conventional. And I just loved being taken into people's lives with wit and humor and openness.
0: Finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners?
2: Well, I did actually stay up really late reading last night, so I could answer this one really easily. It's a novel that's really more of a novella because it was short. I think there should be more short books because a lot of long books are longer than they need to be. Um, but this was a novella slash very short novel called "Small Things Like These" by the Irish writer Claire Keegan, and I just found it so beautiful and I won't give away the plot but it's it's set in a small village and I love going to small towns and seeing what's happening there and there was something just about the intimacy of the setting and it, a lot of it just is um really focusing on the internal life of this one man who's struggling with some things like kind of a combination of an ethical quandary and a and midlife crisis maybe and I just found it quiet and beautiful and very appreciative of the the richness that is in the small details of our lives
0: ellen jovan thank you so much for sharing your grammar table odyssey with us today and for also giving me possibly the best grammar related joke i've heard in years so if you don't mind shall we close the show with it
2: okay what do thesauruses eat for breakfast?
0: I don't know, Ellen. What do thesauruses eat for breakfast?
2: Synonym rolls. Oh,
0: Ellen Jovan, thank you.
2: <laughs> thank you, Red.
0: It's time to turn the page on this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Ellen Jovan and to the show's producer, Sean Preece. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to tune in, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to leaf through our back catalogue, or drop us a line, here's how.
1: Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time.